From time to time, we will bring you a repeat show. This is an episode from our extensive back catalog resurfacing some of the ideas and thoughts from the past that we believe are still relevant and well worth revisiting. In this UX podcast classic, we talk to Tom Griever about how to explain and justify your designs in a way that opens the door for your project to improve the user experience. UX podcast episode 302. This is UX Podcast, hosted by me, James Roy Lawson. And me, Pat Axbom. With bonus track from Christopher McCann. We're balancing business technology and users every other Friday from Stockholm, Sweden. So, what are we doing today? We're, we are doing an interview. And the reason, actually, Chris is here with us is because he wanted to join us when we're talking to Tom Griever, author of Articulating Design Decisions. Um, yep, it's um, a book that came out um, in the autumn. We've all been reading a bit of his book, but Chris is actually one of the three of us that have re has read it early, most. He's already read it before and, yeah. um, and works um, in-house um, at Episerver. Right. Yeah. Um, at Episerver? UX, um, UX, UX lead? What do you call UX lead. I, I don't know. It's, it's under debate, actually, at the moment. <laughs> I, I want to be called UX director, but they won't give me that one yet. So it's I, I lead a team uh, in... Uh, in our product development organization mm. that works with UX. And uh, yeah, I read the book. Uh, I got a lot out of the book. It really resonated with me. I felt it was almost, I could have written the book in, in some some of the bits of it anyway. And I was really impressed by by Tom's um, writing style mostly. And it was I thought it was really approachable. So when they said they were gonna do a, a podcast, I said, well, I wanna join with that. That sounds like fun. Mm. And I think it's really nice to have you here. And it's really nice to have um, someone who's in-house and and working mm. from a different angle with this kind of um, question, articulating design um, um, decisions and also working with teams compared to main pair who are consultants and, and have a different um, yeah. well, working week. Yeah, I mean, I, I approached it from a, from a, from a uh, establishing U.S. culture. I view articulation as really good for that as well as part of leadership, which I find myself being thrown into more and more uh, being in the role that I have today. So from those two angles, I, I or the filters, I, I read the book and got a lot out of it. Hello and welcome to um, the podcast, Tom. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, why don't you um, uh, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and, um, and, and what you've written? Sure. So um, I am the UX director at Betovi. We are a small uh, UX and JavaScript consulting companies. So we help other companies um, build their web applications. And um, I've been doing, you know, UX in various forms and design for well, probably 15 years now. And I've just written a book uh, called Articulating Design Decisions, uh, published by O'Reilly, uh, that is really all about how to explain your design decisions to other people, specifically you know, stakeholders, executives, managers, non-designer types that may, may may not speak the same language that that we do. I, I've found in my career that 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 can be a big problem for designers uh, is is getting approval for their designs. And so, I, I kind of look back on my career and and tried to uh, sort of synthesize all of these things into a, a coherent <laughs> timeline, and uh, in, in in the hopes of you know helping other people overcome some of the things that I've had to overcome um, in my time working in design. I think that the topic of your book is really well needed and uh, it really struck a chord with me because 
Just recently, uh, I, I read a blog post, one of the big user interface or UX agencies in Sweden were talking to their employees about how would you describe UX to someone else? And it really amazed me about how they could not do it, <laughs> how they always struggled to explain what UX is, uh, what UX design is. And they were reaching and thinking about things. Well, it, I make stuff easy to use. But none of them were explaining what the benefit was to the customer, uh, which really amazed me. And what you're discussing in your book is that gap between designers and stakeholders and how really crap, basically, we are at describing what we do. So there is a need, and I think you've done a really good job of describing what what the next step has to be when you go up that level and become a more senior designer. I think all of us as well have, have been in that situation where we have meetings and presentations where we think we've we've lost to, to not no, to put it in 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 blunt terms it's like you mm. you felt like you were going into a meeting with with a really good idea a really good solution and then you come out with completely the opposite yeah well and it's it's complicated by the fact that not only do we have a hard time explaining to other people what ux is but even if you were able to come up with a, a succinct response that, mm. that that demonstrates the importance of ux in organizations most people, I mean, everyone has a different answer about that. And mm -hmm. there's all this discussion about, you know, UX and UI and interaction. And then you throw in content strategy and information mm -hmm. architecture, and it gets very confusing mm -hmm. to people who don't work in our field. And yet those are the people who are writing our checks. Those are the people that we need to approve our stuff. And if we can't help them understand what we do, why it's valuable, mm -hmm. um, then we're not going to get anywhere. We're not going to be successful at creating a great user experience because they're going to override us and they're going to uh, force us to make a change that we disagree with that that, that could be um, a lesser experience for the the end user and the, and the people using our products yeah no, I, I think that's a good point and, and I when I read the book I was uh, I had a lot of these aha moments uh, I mean I've been doing this sort of thing even when in in from school when I studied architecture because it was the same same sorts of things and and being able to explain why you did what you did in a some in a way that people can understand that that sort of strips away all this sort of vernacular this jargon that you use for design is is, is the key to being able to to for, to do a couple of things for for me I'm, I'm working in house so it's part of building a culture if they can understand why you do what you do um, and how you made a decision, it opens up the process and makes it it makes it more accessible. So they don't maybe don't ask that same question the next time. Um, so I, I've I've been looking at it from a, a culture leadership perspective, and and being able to communicate things well is 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 critical if you're working with UX in in an organization. And so I've I've got a lot I got a lot out of it. I thought the book was was really good and spot on, and uh, a lot of good insights. Um, I've before this I've. I start to look at some of my highlights from my my, my Kindle, and I uh, am am looking at a couple of these some of these great quotes that you have here, Tom. That I'm going to probably steal and reuse for at some later date. But yeah, please. Um, it was a it, it was a really good book, and I, I think it also blends in because I, I read two books at the same time. I read this book, and I read um, the uh, the critique book uh, by discussing uh, design, uh, discussing design uh, with and. Both of these books, I felt, complemented one another in in some ways. Um, they kind of approached the discussion of design from two different angles, uh, and they and they really worked really well together. Do you have any thoughts about how these two books work together, or did you? 
I, I've seen on Twitter that you and um, I think it's Aaron have had some Aaron some, and Adam. Diff, diff, yeah, Adam. Sorry, have right. had some 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 kind of connections there. Yeah, so, so I, I know Aaron and Adam, and and their book, Disgusting Design, is also published through, through O'Reilly. And we were both working on our books around the same time, and they were released within just a few months of each other. And it's interesting to see different perspectives on this topic. The and and, and their book, I would I would highly recommend it. And you're right, a lot of people have told us that they they pair really well together, um, but they they come at it from kind of different angles. And I think the the thrust of their book is that. When you're on a, a design team, you know, one of the most important things is that you have a, a set of, you know, common vocabulary, that you have these ground rules for how we're going to critique each other's work, and here's what's effective and here's what's not. This, this is how our team works together. And they have a lot of really great, you know, frameworks and exercises you can go through with your design team um, uh, for making that, that, that time together effective. Um, I'm coming from the angle that you probably also have other people outside your design team, um, probably executives, um, but people who who don't respect or value those same design principles and those exercises. Um, in my experience, a CEO doesn't care about your rules. He doesn't care about your vocabulary. He just wants to come in and tell you what he thinks should be done. And your job is to respond in the moment and, and, and come up with a way of, of bringing him over to your side and seeing your perspective and, and helping him understand the logic behind your design decisions so that he won't overrule you. And I think both books have value um, in, in, in different ways. And I would highly recommend reading both of them together or maybe even at, at the same time for sure. Didn't you have, um, I think there's an example in, in, in the book, or at least you talked about the, the CEO thing, and there was, and you had a story about a CEO who, who was, I think, basically um, prodding you in a certain way during a meeting, and, and he wasn't really interested in what the, what the outcome was. He, was. he was just building, he wanted to know he could trust you. Yeah, and I think that happens a lot. People, executives, maybe they see something, you're not going to be able to stop someone from providing you feedback in the moment, right? Even if you sort of have these established ground rules, if the CEO sees something that he thinks is out of line, he's going to point it out. And in, in the example that you're referencing, James, um, the, the, that CEO was kind of nitpicking on a very small, it was like a, a, a filter menu. And he yeah. was making some specific changes about kind of the size and the way it was placed, just, just really small like UI details. And I felt like it was, I, I could tell it was misplaced for someone at, at, at his level and that that's not why we were there to, to meet. He just noticed this one thing on the view we were showing him and he decided to obsess over it. He was distracted by it and distractions mm. are a huge problem. Mm. And, I, and I talk about how to avoid distractions in depth in, in, in the book. But in that particular case, all I said to him was, I completely agree with you that we need to find a solution for this UI control. And, and something in that statement I was agreeing with him that there was a problem to be solved. I was reinforcing that I was, I listened to him and I heard what he was saying. And it like, it's like a light bulb went off and he just, he almost mm. immediately just stopped and said, okay, great. I, I trust you guys to come up with the right solution. It's like, I, I reminded him that we could mm. be trusted with those things and he didn't have to go on mm. and on about such small nitpicky things that really didn't matter. You, you on, you onboarded him into your team <laughs> and you effectively yeah, and said yes. Well, you 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 all talk about exactly. the, the same. You started the leading with yes, mm -hmm. and 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 then using that as your opening, mm -hmm. and then and then working in with the improvisational theater and all this all, all these things. So that's I recognize that example in that. In those yeah, and that the lead, lead with a yes in the book. I, I get more um, 
great feedback from people on that section of the book, probably than, than anything else. And so I guess if you, if you take anything away from the book, the one thing you should take away is this concept of leading with a yes. And, and, you know, a lot of us are familiar with the idea of the yes. And, um, in improv, uh, in comedy, you know, what one actor brings to the other, they have to say yes to each, to each other. Because if, if you say no, you know, if an actor comes to another and says, Hey, you want to go to the grocery store? And the other guy says, no, I don't think so. Well, you know, curtain closed, the, the sketch is over, like mm. there's nowhere for that conversation to go. And the same is true in our conversations about design. We have to be able to lead with a yes, even if we disagree. Mm. Yes, I see your point. Yes, that's a great perspective. Yes, thank you for bringing that to our attention. We will work mm. on that. So sometimes just staying positive and reminding everyone we're all on the same team, we're going in the same direction, we have the same goals. That's really, really effective at, at helping people um, uh, and uh, see our perspective and allow us mm. to lead and, and make choices that are important for the, the UI. Yeah. I think you can also, though, when you've, when you've got those opposing opinions or opposing, um, issues that come up in a meeting, you can, you can take them and, and, um, reply back almost in, in a way that builds, starts to build a hypothesis. So you, you take what they're saying and you say, okay, um, so, so that means you're saying, oh, you think that this will then lead to, to, to that. Yeah. So you can then lead it into, shall we, shall we try that? Mm. But you've, you've, you've worked through it with them in a more, more controlled manner rather than just kind of, oh. I think that's a concept that relates to that. You had it in your book as well, that when people say something like, I don't like the color of this button, you say, mm. so what I hear you're saying is yeah. if people want to book a uh, schedule a meeting, that they may have a a tough time based on the design of that button. Hmm. Am I hearing you correctly? So you're, again, confirming that person and hearing them and saying that you understand them and you're willing to meet or, uh, yeah, do something about what they're, what they're seeing. Yeah, and you're, you're, you're transforming it into something maybe more, more workable or more yeah. actionable. Exactly. Yeah, and in the, in the book I call hmm. that converting uh, likes into works, right? So oh, yeah. Mm, yeah. when people say that they like something that's too subjective and we've got to we have to move away from that so we can repeat it back to them as you noted per mm -hmm. by, by saying okay what i hear you saying is mm -hmm. you don't like the color of this button but why doesn't it work to have mm -hmm. the button be this color right and mm -hmm. and when you do when you do it that way you allow them the opportunity to talk about the function and the usability of that of that request as opposed mm -hmm. to what just their personal preferences are, because we, we're not as concerned about their personal preferences as much as we are mm -hmm. the usability and effectiveness mm -hmm. of our of our designs. And that's a really effective way, I think, of helping people kind mm -hmm. of see that what they're expressing and the, the change they're asking us to make um, is maybe just a personal preference. Sometimes people will catch right. themselves and be like, oh, well, no, I, yeah. it, it works just fine for that button to mm -hmm. be this color. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think that's interesting yeah. because um, it, 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 to me, doing it that way also introduces the the real goal of design, which is to solve a problem. If you That's if right. you if you if you word it in a set of terms that says, okay, how you know the color? Okay, if our if our if our goal is to you know increase conversions or to do something, I'll say, and, and to and to bring it back to that discussion, um, I think it's it's a lot more valuable because people start to realize that. Okay, this design stuff, it's not about the colors, it's not about yeah. I don't like blue, I don't like red. It's about what that blue and red will actually do towards this solution. Mm. Um so I I've I've used that same technique as a as sort of a again, a, a communication and, and cultural as as an educational tool more than anything. <clears throat> um because you can say that oh no, design, UX design, it's not about the colors. You can say that like a 100 times. But it's not until you say 
not until you sort of weave that into a, a problem that the business wants to solve, someone says, ah, now I get it. I understand the colors and mm-hmm. the, the, the solving of the problem. Yeah, you well, I, even word I think, it. You could, I think yeah. that's an important point because it, it doesn't matter how often. I mean, we, you know, we have these we have these uh, conflated terms now, like UX, and and we have all these uh, fancy titles that we're trying to help people understand, like we talked about earlier in the show. But what happens is people still think that design is all about just what looks good or what I like or what I what I don't mm-hmm. like. You know, no matter like you said, no matter how many times. You say it, and 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 we need to bring that stuff to to the forefront. And in the in the book, I talk about appealing to a nobler motive, which is what you made reference to in in like solving a problem, is that we we almost always have these goals or these problems we're trying to solve. And so our job is not is not just to just take their feedback and kind of swallow it, but instead to like rephrase these things in in the context of that problem. And we can appeal to those nobler motives by pointing at those goals and saying, hey, if our goal is to increase conversion, then changing this button color is going to negatively affect that, right? And we're not very good at doing that. I mean, often, oftentimes we say, okay, I mean, if you think blue will work better, maybe we'll run an A-B test, right? And, and that that's also an appropriate way of like trying to figure out which one works better. But I think we need to to point to those goals more often, and and by the way, appealing to a nobler motive. That that phrase, that word is, um, it's a con- it's a principle of communication that comes from Dale Carnegie's book, uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People. And um, I find that it's especially effective in in design because we always have those motives. We just need to bring them to the forefront and and and, and allow people to to see that that's what we're designing for. We're not designing only for an aesthetic or for our personal preferences, but also to to achieve those goals and solve those problems. Um, also in the book, you, you talk about the importance of, of understanding who you're going to be, what your target audience, who you're going to be talking to, who's going to be, who's your stakeholders that you're going to be presenting to, um, and and being able to um, understand where they're coming from, their 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 angle, they're taking on it all. How do you go about getting or gaining that knowledge or information before you walk into the the room and start talking? Well, it's really, really hard, uh, no doubt. I mean, it requires a lot of social uh, skill <laughs> at just being able to very quickly size people up. Um, if you, I mean, if, if we're talking about people that you've never met with before, then you just have to be really flexible and you have to go with it. You know, a lot of it has to do just with listening and, and talking less, you know, allowing them uh, the opportunity to talk. Um, I always suggest, you know, letting people talk as much as they want without interrupting them because... It's really important that hmm. that they know we're listening, that they uh, feel like they they were able to express themselves um, well. Um, and believe me, because some, sometimes people will repeat themselves over and over again. And that can seem annoying, but usually when they do that, they're trying to find a better way to say it. Because remember, they're not, they may not be designers, right? They may not know how to tell us what hmm. they, they need or want. And so if there's a better way for them to explain the, the problem they're trying to solve or to explain their request to us, we want to hear that. And we want to allow them the, the opportunity to, to talk. And I always tell people to, to even pause for two or three seconds after they're done, right? To, to allow them to, to make sure that they're, they're done talking, right? You don't want to just jump into this you know, defensive posture and, and respond immediately. You want to you want to give it time. You want to let their words kind of sit on everybody's ears. Allow give, it gives you a couple of seconds to process it before you you know jump into a response. But honestly, once you've met with 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 someone uh, even just a few times, it gets much much easier to to know what to expect. Um, a lot of people are gonna 
respond to our work in similar or the same ways every single time, right? Their, their role, their job on, on our team um, affects their perspective. And, and the more we can do to kind of think about, okay, this is a developer type, or this is an executive type, or this is an accounting person, right? We can think about how their role affects their perspective, right? A project manager is probably only really going to care about the deadlines and when it's going to be done. And so we don't need to focus on the details of why this, you know, what we're working on. We just need to focus on getting to the point of, well, if we do this, it's going to take longer, right? You want to appeal to the things that you know are important to those people. Um, and it's, it, it gets easier with time. As a student of coaching now, I'm, I'm, what I'm reading into that chapter when you're talking about that, that is you're actually coaching people into describing their real problem in a better way. So you're actually trying to uncovering, trying to uncover what the real problem is. That's right. We we become facilitators mm. in a in mm. a discussion um, about design with people that don't know how to talk about design, right? Mm. And I think if we see that as our role, um, it becomes a lot easier to jump into that meeting and be effective. The problem is that we um, we don't we don't always see ourselves in that role. We see ourselves as being there to receive feedback from them. Um, and then when we don't like the feedback, we get defensive and we argue yeah. with them and we try to tell them why that's a bad idea, right? If you think of yourself as more of a, of a, of a facilitator of discussion, uh, then it becomes the, just that mental shift, that simple mental shift can help mm. you, I think, uh, bridge that gap. There was one section of your book that I found really intriguing. Uh, is when you were talking about, and this relates also, of course, to how other people understand design, is when you were talking about describing your design in words only. Uh, because that's something I don't think a lot of designers spend time on. Oh, uh, it's something that Nicole Fenton talked about at yes. UXLX uh, yes. last year. When she was talking about interface writing or words as material, mm -hmm. uh, where you're actually trying to describe what you're doing, but just in words. Because that makes you think about, well, how does this sound like to other people? Mm. But I, I can confess to that I rarely do this or basically never. <laughs> oh, well, it's, it's, it's very challenging to yeah, do yeah. completely. It's not solely by words. Mm. Yeah. yeah, well, when we're talking about a medium mm. that is, is mostly visual, um, it becomes difficult to describe to someone. And so the, 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 the tactic in the book or the, the practice in the book is meant to help you understand the rationale behind your decisions because I think that that's an important step. It It's hard to... It's hard to explain your decision to someone else if you don't yourself understand why you made that decision. Because as, as, as visual people and as people building you know, visual interfaces, we, we may build it and we make these unconscious choices, but we don't always know why. And so that's meant to help you kind of connect those dots, right? If I can write down why I did what I did, or if I can describe the interface to someone else who doesn't have the ability to see it, um, that's going to help me uncover my own thinking. I guess you also need to, to be better at um, keeping track of what you've done on the way. Um, Absolutely. You have to do it throughout, throughout the process. Yeah, you can't yeah. wait until five minutes before the meeting. You've, you've gotta, we have to be in the habit of, of connecting those dots all throughout mm -hmm. the process when you're designing. Yeah, like, annotating your, your design work. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and you, you wrote a good blog post about this, I remember, about um, documenting your design, design decisions. Um, uh, which I thought was really good, and I think maybe that's how I first got a hold of, a hold of your name because it just about or about six months before that I started. Um, I work on a product, work with a team, and I realized that we were making design decisions every day, and I were, and I realized that over time I was forgetting what these were, 
Mm. We, we would work really quickly in a team. We would have dis good discussions. Does it fulfill the goal? Yes, no. How are we going to do that? And we're making all these decisions. And then, uh, you know, half a year later, I would look back and say, someone would say, do you remember, why did we do that? And um, I could sort of kind of reconstruct some kind of great thing after the fact. But I realized that that was probably not the best way to do it. Uh, so I started creating a design decision log, which I have as a, as a document. Yeah. And uh, most of the, uh, most of these things, most of these decisions, uh, I usually try to try to be practical. Most of the big decisions, I, I write mm -hmm. down and say what the decision was, why we did it, who made it, mm -hmm. and and so, so you have some kind of you you have some kind of track record of what how you made your decisions and why you made them. Mm -hmm. And I think that blends really well into what you're talking about, Tom. It it, it does, yeah. Writing those things down is critical. Because, like you said, I've, I mean, I've been in dozens of situations where just like that, where you know, someone says, "Why? You know, why did we do it this way?" And, and if you can't, if you can't remember why, um, then you're 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 doomed to just make those same mistakes again. You end up going in a complete circle back to square one where you were six months ago with the very first design that you had, and you start over again. And then you realize, "Oh yeah, that's right. This is why we did it that way. We just wasted a bunch of time." And so I usually a design log is great. This decision log, you know, making a list. It's just it's about taking good notes at meetings. Right. Okay. James, James said that we should change the button to red. So that's what we're doing. And here's, the, and he said, the reason we have to do that is because red buttons are, have higher conversions. Right. I mean, it doesn't have mm -hmm. to be long. We're talking about a few bullet points. Yeah. I had once on mm -hmm. one client project, we had so many different people involved and they weren't always in all of the same meetings that I ended up creating a separate page on our prototype called the change log. I mean, you think about mm -hmm. like a software uh, version change log, right? When mm. when software companies update software, they usually have a bullet list of everything they changed for the the new version. It's basically just like that, right? And so every time there was a new version of the prototype published, I would just write up a bullet list of what we changed and why and who told us to do it. Because what happens is six months later, there's a new manager or a new executive, mm -hmm. someone who has no context whatsoever comes in and they say the same obvious thing that you thought in the beginning. Well, why can't we just do it this way, right? And in, and if you don't have those notes to go back and look and say, okay, here this is the this is the reason why we did it that way, then you're probably going to have to just start all over again and 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 make those changes and learn from those mistakes at the same time. It just wastes time without that information. I think it's it's also applicable to to other aspects of the the work we do, um, mm. like research work, um, good note taking during research as, as well, yeah. or um, annotating or making logs of of what you found, what that lies behind maybe certain uh, decisions, or um, if you found you found some evidence, some data that backs up mm. a certain approach, then you, mm. you make a note of that as well. I mean, there's many times I've been caught out by I've, I found something in like analytics where I've segmented and found a mm. real good piece of information that led to a, a change. But then when you're in a meeting and you kind of say, well, why do you want to do that? Well, oh, because I, oh, I used to, well, how did I, how did I work out those figures? How did I come to that bit of data yeah. that, that was so blindingly obvious that we need to do this change, but yeah. now it's lost in a sea of segmentation in Google Analytics. I'd re recommend people, anyone who works with an agile methodology as well, you have demos. I mean, don't just describe what you've done, describe why you've done it mm. uh, as well, because then you have more people listening. You have more people who can help you remember why you did it as well. Storytelling. Yeah. But it's also, you mentioned, you talked about uh, expertise and credibility in the book, too. To, to me, it's also supports that because if, if six months later they say, why did you do that? And you're like, uh, you know, I, I don't I don't really remember. It seemed like a good idea at the time. It's sort of, it's somehow Very unprofessional. It, it's, it's, I won't say it's unprofessional, <laughs> but it deteriorates <laughs> that, that, that 
and for using a, a word that's probably overly used, the persona of the the the, the designer who who has things, who's, who's who knows what he's doing mm. or she's doing, uh, knows why they did it, and and can articulate it well. I think it it adds to the articulation level by being able to go yeah. back and say, okay, we we did it because yes. of this. Mm. Well, and giving giving our stakeholders mm. confidence in our expertise and our skill is maybe one of the biggest benefits of being articulate about design decisions because. Yeah, that's a perfect example. If if someone says, well, why do we do it this way? And your response is, oh, well, you know, at the time there was this thing and I'm not sure why, but I remember that John said this and th- that it just erodes that credibility. But if if, if you respond with, with confidence and, a, and like a well-articulated position, um, mm-hmm. it gives the other person confidence. If you're confident, they are too. And they go, oh, wow, this guy really knows mm-hmm. what he's talking about. Okay, so yeah, mm-hmm. that, that sounds great. We'll keep it that way. Um, there's a logic there, and I think you mm. th- that that piece is missing if you're not able to explain it. Sometimes we're thinking about, well, how how do I get the confidence and the ability to describe and be that articulate about my my design? Uh, and you also introduce the concept of the dress rehearsal of actually mm. doing presentations before you do them, uh, which helps you. Sometimes you get feedback from whoever is listening to, during the dress rehearsal about things you can change, but it also gives you confidence. I've done this before. It will be easier to do the second time when I actually do it in front of the client or whatever stakeholders I'm meeting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it has helped me a lot doing dress rehearsals in, in uh, the the health uh, environment where I, I work now, where, uh, where I work with people who have, who have specials, specialties that I am I'm not aware of. And you can get these um, – we're talking before about distractions uh, in your presentations – like I had a picture of a doctor uh, have, having a long-sleeved shirt. Oh, yeah. Uh, and somebody called me out on that straight away. You can't have a doctor with a long-sleeved shirt. They have <laughs> to have short-sleeved shirts. Or other, <laughs> otherwise, people are going to point to that and say it's wrong. And so anything that you can get away from, from get away those distractions from your presentations, do, it, do your dress rehearsal, dress rehearsal and make sure that you get that out before the actual meeting. Yeah, well, and, and practicing. Mm. Uh, in, in the book, I say that you know, mm. practicing for a meeting is, is the usability test of explaining mm. design decisions, right? Because we, I think that's a term we all kind of get and understand. Before we take this design decision to production, we're going to test it just on our own, in our own little space, on our own team, uh, in the shower, on the train, wherever. And mm. and that and it and it helps you understand the rationale too. I mean, you'll if you if you have a chance to just pretend that you're already talking to that executive. Um, and I do this all the time, just uh, you know, right here in my own office. I just stand and talk to the wall or the mirror, and I and I, I practice that presentation. I find myself saying things in a different way, and sometimes I uncover logic in my decisions that I didn't even realize was there. And so it gives you that confidence to like, oh wow, I'm I'm actually kind of a smart person. I actually did this <laughs> yeah. for a reason, and I and I'm able to to talk about it, right? And when you do that, you're going to be so much better prepared. And, and I would, I would suggest doing that even for shorter meetings. I think sometimes we, we mm-hmm. think that we only need to do this to meet with the CEO, but I mean, even if you're just mm-hmm. having a daily stand up to tell somebody, here's what I worked on yesterday, here's what I'm doing today. And this is why, mm-hmm. um, that's going to give your whole team confidence that, that you're, you're doing a good job mm-hmm. and you know where mm-hmm. you're going. It's, it's an excellent, mm-hmm. excellent point. Can you, mm-hmm. can you imagine a, a world where, um, no speaker at any conference ever practiced their talk before getting on stage, or, or, <laughs> right. or any or any mm. actor in mm. any film I think bothered I to learn their lines. Mm. Yeah. I mean, yeah. the whole yeah. world with kind of TV, theatre, and and presentations and so on, it would just be chaos if no one bothered to actually test what mm. they're going to do and try and learn and and, and practice mm. what they're presenting. 
Well, I think that also goes back to the, the, the design process itself. I mean, uh, there's many times that I've created something in my head. I've done even done a little sketch, and then you you call a buddy over there and you say, "Hey, come on over," and you you try and you said, "Here's my thing," and you have to articulate it, mm-hmm. and you realize this was really bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, it was. It re- I really. I don't know what I was thinking, yeah. but it's not until I said it, or you had to uh, to, to yeah. say it, because mm-hmm. you're using a different part of your brain mm-hmm. and you're thinking things differently, mm-hmm. that you realize that this is good. Or sometimes, occasionally, I, I'll say something else, and I'll and I'll stop and have my inner monologue and say, mm-hmm. "That was really good." Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> much less frequent, but that but it happens. <laughs> or halfway through. You'll stop yourself and realize the this actual good answer. Mm. As in, you mm. you realize now this wasn't that good. Now I've got it. Yeah. I'll come back to you. Yeah. Mm. You come back five minutes later and pretend. Well, have you ever had I, a conversation I, where you you walked away and you thought, oh darn it, I should have I should have said this a different way, right? Or mm. you know, someone someone hurls yeah. an insult at you, and then it's it's not until two hours later that you think yeah. of the really good comeback, right? I got the right like, comeback. I, mean, I got the right. Yeah, come exactly. on back. <laughs> It's exactly the I'm same principle, right? You give yourself a chance to think of those things in, in advance. And it, it doesn't have to be complicated, but I, I do think that we need to work that into our process. It, you, we, mm-hmm. Our process isn't design, iterate, design, iterate, test, and then demo. There's a there's a practicing for the demo stage in there that is sometimes missing. Yeah. No, I, I mean, a lot of good advice. Um, and, I, and I work with a team, um, and I usually encourage you know, presentations and uh, you mentioned facilitation. I think these are all essential skills for, for any, any UX designer. Um, I would say sometimes even more important than the actual design skills themselves. Yeah. And I have have, a lot of people that say, you know, the, but uh, oh, maybe maybe this is just for, uh, for new designers, right. Who, who are new to the field, but I know a lot of senior, well experienced designers that, that don't do this well. And so just because you've been designing interfaces for, you know, 10 years or so doesn't mean that you're good at explaining them to, to people. You may, you have maybe had mm-hmm. more practice talking to people, but it, it doesn't, it's, it's not automatic that you can be good at, at these things. And I think everybody, we all need to practice it. This is, this yeah, is something I, that I think we can all improve upon. And I think as well, the, 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 um, teamwork and making sure your team well, you've got to make sure that you're batting for the same side because um, it's it's no fun when you come to a meeting and you end up mm. being isolated. Um, and if you go there as part of a of a group, then you've got to make you've got to make mm. sure you feel like your your troops are with you. They're mm-hmm. gonna they're gonna stand by you and and support you or fill in the blanks when you actually do have that moment where you can't remember or or can't remember how you came right. to a certain decision. That someone's gonna cover you. That, that, that's why I, with my team, I usually make the presentation to them first because they are the harshest critics ever. <laughs> they will cut it up so bad. And I know if I can get through those guys, um, it's, it'll be good. That's excellent. <laughs> and uh, I do that a lot yeah. um, for, uh, before, I, before I do presentations or presenting a concept to someone or something like that. Plus, it shows that you have confidence in them. Yeah. So it's mutual. They, well, they they can respect you get respect from them right mm-hmm. and it's been, and also it works the other way is sometimes I have done presentations and they've come back and say you know you didn't really hit it hit it quite right on that mm-hmm. one even though we had practiced so mm-hmm. it's good to have someone that gives you honest feedback along the way mm-hmm. um, yeah in the book I talk about the idea of having a, a ringer in your meetings with you and the the ringer is the person who already knows the answer to the question that is going to be asked and it's actually pretty common on you know like a news format where you know the the anchor in the studio is interviewing someone who's out on the street uh, reporting about 
something happening live and then and then they, they cut back to the studio and the anchor asks one more question which the guy on the street just happens to know the perfect answer to right they <laughs> they they figure mm. those things out in advance and um it may seem a little bit underhanded but that sort of thing can actually be really effective in our own meetings with stakeholders when you have other people that are there to to back you up and ask good questions about why you did what you did because it demonstrates that that there's other there's other smart people in the room that agree with us, right? It's this isn't just my idea, this isn't just my thing, this isn't just what I like. But there's other uh, intelligent people that that agree with me, and I think anytime you can bring someone on board like that, and and I should emphasize, I'm not just talking about design teams because there may be people who are on a design team of one, and you need to get the person from marketing to come to your meeting with you because you know that they're going to support you in those design decisions, even if maybe they weren't invited or you know, weren't initially a part of that project, right? You need other people in the room to support you and ask good questions that you'll be able to effectively answer in front of the people who will approve your work. And that's that's an excellent way of tying us back into to one of the earlier parts of the podcast there when we said about when I said about learning to know your your audience or, or who's going to be in the meeting that that's a, an important part of the thought process to to bring in people that you you do already know something about that allows you to internalize some of the situation mm. that you're going into. Mm. The whole rationale for doing this is actually to get the best design decisions, mm. get approval for the best design decisions, which and not get stuck in those conversations where you don't get anywhere. Yeah. I'm curious how you how you came about to decide to write this book and what mm. what 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 was your thinking and over what period of time? I mean, did you just wake up one day and say, I know what I think I'm going to write about. I know what the key to all this is all this 15 years of experience is. Can, can <laughs> you can you can you guide us through your thinking process there? Uh, sure. Well, I mean, I think probably my whole life or my whole career. I mean, I've, I'm, if anything, I'm good probably at talking <laughs> and I just have <laughs> the gift of being able to, to uh, make stuff up as I go. And, and so in that sense, this is a skill that I probably have, you know, uh, more nat that I'm more naturally inclined to. Um, but I remember, I remember talking to a colleague once a few years ago and, and him telling me, you know, it's one thing to be able to de design really well. But it's another thing to be able to teach other people how to design really well or to explain to other people what design, what good design is and what it looks like. And that that stuck with me for a long time. And so then I was um, I was actually so I, I live near St. Louis, uh, Missouri, and, and, and they were doing a, a UX conference. And I had been asked to submit a, a talk or uh, for, for that conference. And so I actually submitted um, at least three different ideas and articulating design decisions was was one of them but believe it or not it was it was my least favorite of the three because it seemed <laughs> it seemed so obvious and so just kind of boring to me this was something i do every day you know i i'm a designer but i probably spent 50% of my time telling people why i did what i did and it just seemed so mundane uh, but that was the talk that they were interested in having me give so i i spent some time kind of just thinking about okay how do I how do I explain my design decisions to people? And I started writing down some some principles and trying to kind of organize it in my head. And as I submitted talks for future conferences, this was the talk that that other conferences continued to want me to to give. And so it started out as a conference talk, and then I was at um, I was at one conference where uh, O'Reilly was the sponsor. And, and and my editor was sitting in the audience when I gave the talk and it was really well received and 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 they asked me if I would consider putting it into a book. And there and there's actually a video series as well. 
But going from a, a conference talk to a book um, is challenging too, because now you kind of have to look at each individual piece and break it down um, e even more. And so I think the, the process of reflecting on my own career and how I do what I do and why I do it that way and, and what are some best practices for explaining things, it's, it's difficult. It's difficult to do, but it was very rewarding, I think, to be able to look back and, and, and hopefully help some other people um, overcome some of the same things that I've dealt with in, in my own career. And, and I know all of us can relate to having these conversations with people about design. And so it's, yeah. it's really been fantastic to, to hear from people about how the, the book has helped them. And I hope it'll help you guys too. It's, 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 well, it's definitely helped me. I can say that right away. So, uh, and I think it's, um, it's clearly from the, the attention that you've re received, um, uh, from conferences, conferences, then, um, you found, you found a pain point, um, out there that people have yes. and, and helped and hopefully help them, um, come closer to, to, to solving it. Mm. So well done. And thank you very much for joining us and, and talking about it as well. Hey, no, thank you. Yeah. I, I had, had a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. So that was a really good question you asked at the end there, Chris, because it's fascinating sometimes uh, that when you know stuff, uh, like Tom obviously does, you don't realize how little other people know. You think that, well, everyone's doing the same thing. So when he uh, put this forward to conferences, they actually uh, realized that no, not everyone does it the way Tom does it. And so this is something that we can learn from him. Uh, and I think all of us are in that position. I mean, when I first came into HTML design, I thought, this is really simple. A lot of people know this. Why would anyone pay me to do this for them? And you realize, oh, so so not everybody does this. And uh, so uh, so it became really meta because then Tom's uh, what mission then is actually articulating how, how you articulate. <laughs> Uh, which is quite fun. I, I, I also reflected on the fact that, that when you asked the question about yeah. writing the book and why, and and Tom said about how, or implied the 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 therapeutical process of doing it that this gave him the chance to reflect upon his work and his career and his processes yeah. and and considered them and and put them to to paper and. Um, and then, of course, allows him to share that knowledge. And, and sharing the knowledge is, is such an important thing in our, our young industry. And mm. one of the reasons why we do this podcast is to, to learn ourselves and to share yeah. to share knowledge. But um, but we're all we're all uh, the composite of mm. our experiences up to this mm. point and the knowledge we've picked up. Mm. So we've all got something to to, to share if we mm. can just articulate it. Yeah. Right. And I, and I and I really like that uh, Tom's made the reference to to teaching as well um, because I. I recently been involved in a little bit of teaching and realized that that you really need to be able to articulate your your message very very well and you just starting out you're you think you can do it really well but you realize uh after doing a couple trial runs that that people don't get it um so i think the exercise of articulation is one of of one of, of refining your own thinking and your own thoughts uh, to to be much sharper and effective. So, um, yeah, I, re I really liked it. It's good to have people who are able to give you honest feedback. I mean, I don't think everybody has that. So I'll, always, I mean, I get so so much feedback saying, "Oh, that was really good," but then there's something that wasn't quite right. But people are some somewhat afraid of telling you sometimes. Well, yeah, because they mm -hmm. think that you know you're the mm -hmm. expert, and they mm -hmm. you know they, they they don't know anything. And this is a, what do they call this? The, the Dunning Kruger effect, where mm -hmm. they, you know, the experts don't think that they know anything, and the, and the novices think that they they know. Yeah. They oh, you're know right. That's quite that's quite the kind of opposite thing to the imposter mm -hmm. syndrome. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I actually I actually tweeted a quote from um, Tom's book um, the other day. Um, 
stop, take a look at the people around you and remember one thing. They are human. Mm-hmm. Um, which, I mean, okay, I'm not trying to summarise his book in, in, in <laughs> one, one line, but that's one of the things that really stuck out for me. That, and we've even brought, brought it up with Whitney Hess when we talked to her and the, the whole empathy thing and, and remembering that, you know, we're all just people and, and you actually have a much easier job, I think, of communicating things or even giving feedback if you remember mm. that we're all, we're all just people. Mm. And don't be too quick to judge. Yeah, 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 and don't be don't be afraid of of people. I mean, the CEO is also just human. Mm. Good point, James. Mm. Thanks, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> Almost a little therapy session here. Exactly. <laughs> Next week we'll be having a call-in coaching session. We're just gonna <laughs> hug. We're just gonna, <laughs> hug. We're just gonna hug. You can't see us now, but it's a group hug going on right here. Yeah. Recommended listening now is episode one hundred and sixty-eight, articulating more design decisions that we recorded almost two years after this conversation. This podcast has been a repeat show from our archives. Let us know which of your favorite episodes from over the years you think we should repeat for more people to listen to. to tell you a joke about introverts, but you wouldn't get it. It's an inside joke.